And a very warm welcome back to Solidarity Breakfast. A left response to the major developments in capitalism. What they trade in is not wheat. They trade in famine. A little dose of revolutionary optimism. I think it's really important to sort of express solidarity globally. It really is a deal by corporations for corporations. The union forever defending our rights down with the black If you think the ABC's left wing, don't listen to this program. Solidarity Breakfast, 7.30 to 9am Saturdays, 3CR, 8.55am streaming and 3CR digital, podcast or audio on demand. And of course, the website, solidaritybreakfast.org.au. Solidarity forever! Good morning, folks. It's Annie for Solidarity Breakfast. And this morning we've got lots of things to talk to you about. And uh, if you were listening to Stick Together, you would have heard about the uh, Australian Unemployed Workers Union's uh, National Day of Action. I went down there and I've got some pretty interesting speeches that a couple of different people made. You might want to cover your ears if you're worried about swearing, the, the last group. Do swear a little bit, but it's probably because they're a bit upset. But uh, there's other things as well. Kevin is back. All those people who only listen to the program to hear this is the week that was, you can now rest easy. He is back. So uh, tune in at about 8.20. You will hear uh, Kevin Healy's roundup for the week. And But before we continue any further... We've got a live guest and we've got uh, Brett Dehoot who's come in here to talk to us. He's from the Citizens for Melbourne group. That's a new group, isn't it? Brand new, Annie. Yes, and it's in response to the announcement that the uh, state government's put forward, uh, the Apple building for Federation Square. Yeah, we're just a bunch of Melburnians who were inspired to form a group when we got the shock announcement just before Christmas about the Apple mega store planned for Federation Square. And there were enough of us that we were so angry that we thought, we don't want more public space to be eaten up. Let's form a group and fight this. And so we have been fighting. And it was shocking. I uh, saw the picture of it and uh, I was just uh, thumbing through my various Facebook uh, uh, things and I was was gobsmacked. So was I. Yeah, uh, uh, because it was literally sprung on us because there was no consultation. There was no exhibition of the plan. There was no discussion deliberately. Two years of secret negotiations and suddenly the tourism minister, not the premier, the tourism minister is announcing it as a fait accompli and as a fantastic boom for Victoria. And uh, it was just dumped on us. And I think that's part of the reason that's, you know, one of the things that's fueling all the anger out there in Melbourne about the plan. Can you describe uh, uh, what what they're thinking they're going to do? Yes. They would like to go into Fed Square, Apple, and knock down the Yarra building, which if, you know, if you're looking at it with the station behind you, looking at Fed Square, the sort of the main entrance, it's that building on the right-hand side, yeah. knock down in total. And reco- and, and, and the perspective, posp- uh, perspective you get on Fred Square is that it's like a mountain range. Yes. And one end of the mountain range is going to be knocked off. Yes. And replaced with something that looks unmountainous. <laughs> It'll be a glass pagoda style building. Or as someone called it, a, uh, what was it, a um, sort of a takeaway joint. Someone said it was reminiscent of the old Pizza Hut pagoda style buildings. That's right. If you're old enough to remember that. And there are some people who love those old Pizza Hut buildings. We're not uh, a big fan of it in Fed Square, that's for sure. It's of course... You know, I'm not an architect. 
and uh, our concerns aren't even primarily architectural, but it's a glass temple to all things Apple. It's a uh, basement and two stories, three stories. It uh, can it will join Fed Square. Uh, it sits between Fed Square and the Yarra River. It is you know all things Apple. It's slick and modern and clear, but it is only for Apple and all things Apple. It is a store, a mega store, gigantic and totally out of sync with the rest of Fed Square. Now, uh, there's lots of reasons why you'd be upset. I was really upset from an, an artistic point of view, which is funny, uh, considering that when uh, Fed Square was being built, I remember watching it being built thinking, God, this is a God-ugly building. <laughs> and then I was realising that actually it wasn't. It was actually quite an exclusive building and it was a fascinating building. Like I said, it's like a, a building range. Uh, having this thing on the side is actually going to destroy the aesthetic. But that's there are really key things that are much more important probably. I mean, we won't have the uh, knockdown argument about it. But there's a founding document, isn't there, for Fed Square? This is supposed to – there's supposed to be a balance between civic and cultural uh, aspect and it, there's a charter. Correct. There is a charter that talks about how the building and the Fed Square is to be used. And it was never intended to be dominated by one commercial interest. It is not supposed to be a national park. It is not supposed to be free of of commercial enterprises. Thus, we have the restaurants. Thus, we have the bar. You know, uh, citizens for Melbourne are totally fine with that. But there's a humongous difference between getting a beer, a coffee, going to the gift shop at the National Gallery of Victoria compared to one gigantic well, Apple Well, and ex- existing purely for Apple. Correct. The tourism minister proudly talked about 2 million visitors to the store every year. Now, think about any building that is getting 2 million visits a year dominates all the area around it. And the public-funded space that is Fed Square will just be a lobby for the Apple megastore. And if anyone thinks otherwise, they're crazy. No, yeah, which is, is quite fascinating because really what we're entering now is the, the whole thing about public space and what people think is uh, public space. Now, I, um, pub, uh, Fed Square is actually run by a management group. So it's uh, run uh, – I mean, I'm reading some of the stuff about Fed Square and it's talking about it as if it's a business. People actually think it's a place to go. It's a place to go, and I love the fact that it's a place to go for probably the broadest variety of people in Melbourne. If you think about every major cultural hub in Melbourne, you probably could stereotype the people who go there. You probably could say, oh, that's where that sort of person goes. Fed Square is very unusual in that it's got everything from, you know, I wish I had a better phrase for it, but high-end artistic expression to going to see exhibitions about Wallace and Gromit. It's got Acme, it's got the NGV, it's got restaurants, it's got bars, it's a gathering point to watch on the giant screen, everything from the you know the AFL Grand Final to the tennis to art house movies. That is very rare in modern life, that different people from different postcodes, different ages and stages, there are tourists there, there are locals there. It's a wonderful public meeting space, but it's about to be irreversibly uh, changed in one direction to be a, a retail space. So what happened on Tuesday night? Tuesday night... The City of Melbourne voted on a motion that was put forward by Councillor Leppert. And that, because let us not forget, the City of Melbourne... That's a great name, Councillor Leppert. (laughs) I can't take responsibility for it, Anne. No, no, no. no. But um, the City of Melbourne had also been totally kept out of the loop. They have nothing, they're not the bad guys, they had nothing to do with it. Because the Planning Minister, Richard Wynne, granted himself an an exemption and thus has taken total control over the project. So the City of Melbourne's been out of the loop. 
uh, Councillor Leppard proposed a motion that essentially said if we vote in favour of the motion, the City of Melbourne will petition the upper house of the state parliament to stop and reboot the planning process. My words, not directly quoting from the motion, of course. So that was their decision to place pressure on the upper house. We, Citizens for Melbourne and our, um, our City, Our Square campaign, decided to make sure that there were plenty of submissions to tell the council how people wanted to vote. And we ran a campaign. I'm sure some listeners contributed submissions to it. Because you've got a lot of signatures. Absolutely. We got 800 submissions to the City of Melbourne in a four-day period, which is apparently a record for such a motion. The motion was passed unanimously by all councillors, and thus the City of Melbourne is basically sticking up for Fed Square a little bit more than they had been up till then and saying to state government, this is not okay. We have to start the planning process again with um, due consultation, due exhibition, and so on and so forth. That might according to the City of Melbourne, end up with um, the Apple Megastore being in another location, which is fine with our group, but it might also end up with just amended designs, which we as a group are not satisfied with. We don't want an Apple Megastore in Fed Square. We don't mind it in lots of other locations, by the way. We're not anti-Apple Megastore, not in Fed Square on public land. Yeah, 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 exactly. Um, when, when, when they're talking about, uh, just as an aside... When they say that they are they going to give them the land or is it rent or what? We don't know. Oh, right. So believe it or not, after two years of secret negotiations, the details of the plan of the 20-year lease have not been released. So we have got to take it on trust that we're getting a good deal. So any time anyone says, oh, Fed Square needs to earn its keep, it's not getting enough revenue. You but what have... does that mean? Because it's mean? a public space. Correct. 10 million people go there a year. 10 million. That is great value, right? Not, you know, 10 million people is incredible. What, what are they, how are they working out? Um, what's the balance sheet? How do they work out that it's not earning its keep? What, well, what are they, what's on the negative and the positive sides of this? You would have to talk to Fed Square Management about that, but it's the curation of all the programs there, the maintenance of the building. And by some accounts, it's not making enough money. But of course, you could say that about the Royal Botanic Gardens, couldn't you? You could say that about the Yarra River, couldn't you? You could say that about the Shrine of Remembrance. You could say that about every single sports ground, childcare centre, aged care centre, dare I say it, in the city. So the precedent that has been set is phenomenal. If the CBD of Melbourne, if a, if a mega corporation can take over the CBD of Melbourne's public space in every local government area in Victoria, there's another corporation that's thinking, you know what, we'd really like that cricket oval for ourselves. We would really like that park. We would like that river. Well, yeah, no, it's not. It's not. Uh, well, interestingly enough, uh, having known people who have worked in council, that uh, when they've ne- negotiated takeovers of particular spaces in a park, for example, say for uh, childcare facilities, the uh, methodology was that if you took that space, you had to give something else back. Obviously, this is at risk as well, because obviously Apple aren't going to give us any land back. Uh, no, I don't know what compensation <laughs> the people of Melbourne will I be can receiving. Expect, yeah. But you can't, you know, they, well, Apple could afford anything. They are a trillion with the T dollar company, trillion dollar company, but we don't know the details. And when the announcement was made just before Christmas, uh, the uh, Apple representative repeatedly refused to share the details. Oh, no, because it's in public public in confidence because it's a business. That's right. Ooh, That's right. That's We're right. all pretty f- familiar with this yeah. uh, little scapegoat. But uh, before we uh, finish off... Uh, uh, the Greens have uh, done something recently. Yes, they have uh, pro- 
proposed to stop the Apple store being built. So, you know, we are a, a not a politically aligned group, but of course we have to work with all of the political parties to persuade them to vote in certain ways and to respond to what the people want. Um, so we are hopeful that the Apple mega store won't be built in Fed Square. In fact, we're more than hopeful. We're pretty obsessed with that thought at the moment. And and look, there is a, one thing I'm... It's incredible when you take on the state government and Apple, you've got some big opposition, but um, we're close to 90,000 signatures on the change.org.au petition at the moment. Um, and it's an election year, of course. We've had that 800 submissions, and I think there is a genuine distaste for the thought that this public space will be taken over. You know, So everything's possible. So people can get involved? Absolutely. If you are on any form of social media, uh, our city, our square is our campaign. Our city, our square. If you search for that on any social media platform, you'll find us. Please join us. We are fighting the good fight. Our city, our square is what to search for. You and I have stayed in touch With the ones that made us strong We do it and we don't know it's been done Hi, I'm Aaron Pedersen, and you're listening to 3CR. You are. You're listening to Solidarity Breakfast with Annie. And as I was saying, uh, we have uh, a report from the Australian Unemployed Workers Union uh, National Day of Action, February the 3rd. Uh, I'll leave it to them to explain. Uh, uh, Valerie Fafala, who's the Vice President of the, or whatever you'd call it, uh, of the... um, uh, Australian Unemployed Workers Union was here on in Melbourne's uh, demonstration and uh, she opens up proceedings. Gather round, gather round me hearties. Come in, gather round. This National Day of Action against the welfare crackdown in Melbourne, Bendigo, Sydney and Adelaide will fight back against the government's plans to dismantle our social security system. Now the government's introducing two bills in Parliament shortly which will significantly expand the dangerous work for the Dole forced labour program, extend and expand the discredited cashless welfare program, increase the waiting period for New Start, cutting payments by $540 for new applicants, and increase financial penalties for the unemployed. But what's even worse, it will give private job agencies complete power to make compliance decisions, taking away government oversight and the unemployed workers' right to review. Now, what do we call that? We call that fascism. What do we call it? We call it fascism. fascism. Now, these attacks are some of the serious ever launched, most serious ever launched against the unemployed. If passed, unemployed Australians will effectively be forced to do whatever the job agency wants in order to remain on New Start 268 a week, no matter how unreasonable their request. This is the privatisation of our social security system by stealth. Remember at the last election, the LNP was furious when it was accused of trying to privatise Medicare. Do you remember that? Oh, yeah. Well, it's contracting out Centrelink services to Serco, a company that runs prison and asylum seeker centres. And now it's crucifying job seekers on the privatised job agency cross where fraudulent practices and rorts go unchecked and it's totally corrupt. 
Our President Owen Bennett recently did some research and discovered the star ratings wrought, the pay slip wrought, the work for the doll wrought, the job club wrought, the training wrought, the appointments wrought, the compliance wrought, and the basic services wrought. Are you familiar with any of these? Okay. So the job agencies are paid by the government based on outcomes rather than by finding jobs for job seekers. And in 2015, a Four Corners investigation found evidence of fraud, manipulation, falsified paperwork, and the recycling of unemployed workers through temporary jobs. I bet many of you have experienced that too. But the LNP wants to hassle unemployed workers in order to reduce the welfare budget. It's all about the figures. And if we're hassled enough, it hopes we'll give up new start payments and disappear, demoralised, down under, saving the government some money. No such luck, Malcolm. No such luck, Malcolm. No such luck. Just to go through a few of the welfare reforms, increased compliance demands. Under the bill, nearly 300,000 people aged between 30 and 49 must do 50 hours a fortnight for work for the dole and other job-seeking activity. That's 20 more hours than what you currently do. Unemployed workers aged 50 to 59 must do 30 hours of work and training a fortnight, up from 15 hours. Job seekers 60 and over must attend at least 10 hours of voluntary work a fortnight to keep social security benefits. And then there's the demerit point system. This is where it gets tough. Failure to meet a mutual obligation by missing an appointment will result in the mandatory loss of a point. Job agencies will be able to cut a month's pay, a month's pay, if a job seeker fails to attend appointments, work for the doll, training and volunteer placements. Even if they're in hospital. And what's scary is that private job agencies will have unprecedented powers to punish job seekers for non-compliance. Unemployed workers will have no ability to launch appeals. No ability. Until now, Centrelink's been able to reverse job agency punishments, but not anymore. And there'll be longer waiting periods for payments. Not until they get their first appointment with a job agency. So with no money in their pockets, unemployed workers won't be able to buy goods and boast growth, boost growth, Mr Turnbull. Another thing, the maximum liquid asset waiting period for single people with savings of more than 18,000 or couples with dependents with savings of 36,000 will double from 13 to 26 weeks, meaning people with savings could wait up to six months before they get a payment at all. So what are you meant to live on, hey? Single parents will have to provide third-party witness to back up claims their relationship's over to get the single parent pension. Witnesses making a false declaration about a relationship could be jailed for up to a year. Okay, so this makes it harder for women to leave abusive relationships. And what if they're living in a mixed share house to help pay the rent? Isn't that normal? This was the case in the 70s. I think most of us didn't. But we're going backwards. So if there's a a male in the same house as a female there, they're, they're going to be declared a de facto, even if there's a group of other people living there. There you go. Oh, we've also got the cashless welfare. So the bill removes section 124PF of the Social Security Administration Act that limits the trial to three locations. That's ending on June 30th. And this enables the indefinite extension of the card. So the government wants to bring that out across Australia. So it restricts 80% of any income support to an F POS-style debit card. All you get is cash, 20%. FPOS is involved. It's wholly owned by 18 members, including Woolies and Coles. 
So you can imagine, it's all going to big business. What if you prefer cheaper markets, charity shops, farmers markets, school fades, excursions, lunch money? These things require cash payments. The card takes away people's right to choose where they shop, how they pay their bills, and where they'll live. So it's another case of the LNP outsourcing. This is to the private Indu Star Group company, which uses Visa card platform to control payments and makes decisions on behalf of people without their consent. Should be a voluntary procedure. Even ACOS is saying the Senate must reject mandatory cashless debit cards because they're not backed by reliable evidence. They've been imposed on communities without proper consultation. And it's stigmatizing. And who wants it? Who wants to have a cashless welfare debit card? Anyone here? If passed, the bill will achieve what successive governments have been trying to accomplish, the breakdown and privatisation of our social security system. The AUWU has launched Operation February Flood, and its goal is to flood crossbench MPs and senators with letters urging them to vote down the welfare reform bill. The vote is so tight, so if we get one senator to change their mind, we can defeat this bill. This week, this week, yeah, the AUWU sent a petition to the Nick Xenophon team pointing out this bill's a cruel and dangerous attack on the dignity and well-being of the unemployed. People who've been shut out of the labour market due to no fault of their own. Another key target is Senator Darren Hinch. Hinch holds the balance of power in the Senate and he's our best hope of stopping the outrageously punitive and dangerous welfare reform bill. So go to our website, unemployedworkersunion.com and help us flood the Senator's office. Hi, I'm Aaron Pedersen, and you're listening to 3CR. Yeah, you're on Solidarity Breakfast with Annie, and that was uh, Valerie Fafala, who was at the National Day of Action uh, for the Australian Unemployed Workers Union, who are calling for people to uh, vote down the uh, LMP, the federal government's uh, so-called welfare reform bill, which is in... Uh, play at the moment. They came back. The uh, pollies all came back on Monday where everyone's being distracted by uh, uh, Barnaby Joyce's uh, uh, extramarital affairs. But actually there's far more things at stake. Uh, uh, Barnaby Joyce's uh, lack of uh, conservative correctness is really just uh, part of the course for uh, people who... um, don't seem to think that any propriety uh, is, uh, you know, that they fall into any sort of level of propriety. And the uh, welfare reform bill, in inverted commas, is an example of this outrageous and nasty behaviour. Now, uh, coming up next is some responses and talk the speakers at that rally. As I said, you might want to cover your ears because there's a few stray uh, F words. Uh, I left them in because they're actually quite expressive and important to the delivery of the speeches. Hi. Um, yeah, my name's Spike. Um, I'm a founding member. Cause Kelly, I'm a founding member of the Homeless Persons Union. Um, I was unemployed. I was unemployed for 34 years, wow. uh, and I had a long-term homeless uh, lived experience of homelessness. And I've been working in in homeless health for the last 12 months. 
And so what I'm, what I'm, what I got up sort of to talk about was the impact of these uh, changes to uh, the, the potential changes to the unemployment benefit and the, the, the point scoring system and the drug testing um, and all these uh, diabolical bureaucratic devices used to punish people. Um, the impact that they have on people that are already homeless. And so what we see on the street is about 5% of the homeless population, the people sleeping rough. Now to them, their new staff benefit is everything that they have. Everything that they have. And because of the protocols in the city of Melbourne, they're constantly on the run. They're constantly on the move. So they, they have to, they, they carry all their belongings. Uh, so a rough sleeper's day amounts to carrying all their belongings and looking for a place where they're not going to get moved on by PSOs, police officers and private security guards. So that, that's where what we've ceded our community to is to the, you know, our basically civil society is basically a, a, security, a, a security function. And, and for people that are sleep, again, I'll, I'll say it again, for people that are sleeping rough, that new staff benefit is all that they have. That, that health care card, without a health care card, you lose access to laundry facilities, to shower facilities, to, um, to, to be able to see a doctor, to be, even to be able to get assistance for, for your housing situation, you need a health care card. So it's you know the changes to send that those proposed changes would be diabolical for people that are uh, sleeping rough. The people living in rooming houses that are paying two hundred dollars a week in rent, they're paying already fifty percent of their income in rent. <laughs> that 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 means they're going to have to choose between um, buying medication, food, um, and ha and having their rent paid. And and by the way, uh, uh, a rooming house means that. You, well, in, in, in low likelihood means that you're sharing a property with 10, maybe 20 other people. You're sharing a toilet, um, a bathroom and a kitchen with 20 people that you don't know. And you're paying up to, you could be paying $230 a week for, that, for, the, for the privilege. And there's people in crisis that come like Hanover, Flagstaff, um, um, Osnum House, where people are paying up to $200 a week. So there's a whole industry that's based on people being on these benefits. Yet, we have this, it's this sort of, it's, it's part of the way the system is trying to confuse the whole situation is that, you know, the YWCA all benefit from Commonwealth Rent Assistance. So all, it, it, what they're punishing the most vulnerable members of our community and and I suppose I'm up here to just remind people that, that the disrespect that people feel when they're unemployed, the feeling of isolation, the feeling of confusion, the, the precariousness that, that you feel when you're unemployed is, is um, amplified tenfold when you're homeless. When you're struggling to find somewhere, somewhere to eat, somewhere to keep the rain off your head, um, somewhere to dry your clothes or, or to wash them, having to deal with a job network member or some uh, paternalistic, conceited Alan Tudge who, who, um, who, who compared being able to access a government benefit to having a licence, a driver's licence. 
and that if you breach your license, you, uh, if you, yeah, if you breach your license, you lose your ability to to use it. So our civil, our 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 right to be able to exist, our, our right to be able to live, is predicated in in neoconservative and neoliberal neoliberal eyes. It, it's predicated on your ability to look for a job to be functional in the market. And I'd argue today that if it was up to the Homeless Persons Union, we'd have a living wage because, because an unemployment benefit only entitles you to a benefit while you're looking for work. What we should be fighting for is a living wage because we are all entitled to exist. Benefits are paid for with our taxpayer dollars. So there shouldn't be a, a politician's decision to decide whether or not we get unemployment. If we as a community decide we are entitled to a benefit, we should be getting it. And no you know, minority in the ivory tower has got the right to take that office. And, and I think you know, it's, it's not enough that we need to rebuild um, uh, the welfare system. We need to take it back because it's ours. It is, our society is what we make it. And up until now, we've let, you know, incrementally, They've stolen all, you know, the SEC, the Public Transport Corporation, Gas and Fuel Corporation, um, you know, the, the, the Postmaster General, everything. We've been fleeced. Now they're trying to take away our, our unemployment benefits. Well, let's fight for a living wage and tell them to go fuck themselves. Well, I think we all feel a bit that way, and, and good on you for saying it. That's the way it is. Pretty shocking. We've got Daniel Taylor, and Daniel's got a beef with a cashless welfare card. Yeah. Hello, um, my name's Daniel Taylor. I'm a former trial participant of the cashless welfare card. I was living in Kununurra in 2016 with my partner and children and they announced that they're putting the card out for everyone. Um, I didn't really have a problem with it at first. I've had the basics card before and I thought it would be just like that. And then we activated our cards and they gave us a book, Terms and Conditions. It was a pretty thick book. I get home and start reading through it. it took me two days to come across a page, page 76. It said, by activating our card, we agreed to all terms and conditions. And then I read further in, and the terms and conditions were that our information was going to be shared with state, you know, government agencies, um, non-government agencies, everything. It, it, it was just open slather on us. We'd lost all rights to privacy. And I thought, this isn't right, you know. So I went back and saw them. And I said, I, I, I don't agree with this. I don't want this card. Take it back. And they said, what are you going to do? What are you going to eat? And I said, fuck yes, I'm on a hunger strike. And I went 16 days without eating. And they, they just ignored me. They tried saying that my mental health was mad. They sent police and child protection services around saying that we were starving the kids. And that. I had to sort of leave the family home in the end because pressure was getting put on us um, because of, you know, my fight. Um, and then I, I started looking into it more and more, connecting with people on Facebook, um, online, you know, there was people out there, information was getting shared, but the government still wouldn't listen to us, the people that was on it. Then I found out last year that there's trial participants, you know, they've legislated to trial this on 10,000 participants 
in three areas. Well, if you're a trial participant, any kind of trial, one of the main things is they have to get your consent, right? They have to tell us what the trial is about. For a trial to be set up ethically, they need to look at the benefits versus the risks in the trial. They already knew that we had a crime problem in Kununurra. In the Andrew Forrest report, in his recommendations, it said before the card is implemented that the police be made aware that there will be a jump in crime until people get used to it. Was that an acceptable risk? No. Right? The whole trial was designed with no ethical oversight from a human research ethics committee. Right? I asked the government, has this trial been approved? They could not or they would not answer me that. I then rang Arima Research, which was doing the evaluation. I said, have you been approved by a human research ethics committee to evaluate this trial? And they said, yes, we have. And I said, is it ethical to evaluate a trial where participation is mandatory and no one has given genuine informed consent? They put me on hold. They came back after 20 minutes and said, ring social services. I rang social services and they said, you're off the trial. And then I asked them, well, can I please have a written letter stating why I've been removed from the trial? Six weeks later, I got an email stating that the secretary can remove a trial participant if they believe it's affecting their physical, mental, or emotional well-being. And I replied to them, yes, I know why exemptions can be granted. Why was mine granted? I waited another two weeks, and I got an email saying, because we believe it's affected your emotional, mental well-being. But then I find it funny that within six weeks of me doing all this, they try to amend the bill. And really, they're not taking any of the other stuff out about sharing our information and all that. The only thing that they're removing is the heading, like trial. They're removing the word trial from legislation, trial participant, and trial areas. By removing them three sections, they're removing all of the rights that were never recognised or respected to start with of the participants. You know, that, that is the main, that, that is one of the biggest things. And what we have to attack, the card is nothing. That is the stick that they're using to hit us. The card has got no power without the legislation. The, we have to attack the legislation. Forget about the card, you know. If you're fighting someone and they're hitting you with a stick, you don't focus on the stick. You've got to step up, get a few hits, but you've got to get the person behind the stick, and that's the legislation. That's where we need a fight, you know. Uh, yeah, the bill, that's it. In the High Court. The whole thing is un unconstitutional. Section 5123A of the Constitution, it says that they can make laws for social security, pensions, unemployment, health and medical benefits, but not to include any form of civil conscription. How is the mandatory nature of this trial not a form of civil conscription? It's exactly the same with the work for the, uh, not work, yet work for the dole, even with in the other welfare bill they're putting through that they're giving all the power to the job agencies. That is a form of civil conscription. But social security is a right, right? It's in the constitution. We're entitled to that. They can't civilly conscript that out to a private corporation before we have to sign up with a private corporation before we can get it. That is what the challenge we have to make. I've been trying to get this information out for the last four or five months. But people just, oh, he's mad. He doesn't know what he's talking about. 
you know. I, I, I know it, man. I, I've been living this for two years, you know. And that's what we, we have to fight it in the courts. That, that, that's the only way that it can be done, you know. But trying to get a lawyer to stand up and do anything for it, no. That's, I walked into the High Court in December like a dickhead with a copy of the legislation and the Constitution. And I said, yep, bang, I want to refer this. And they laughed at me. Took, them all, took me a while to tell them that I was serious. And then, you know, they, they, they printed me out a thing. I have to write a submission to the courts. I have to put in points of law, precedents, and why I'm a fit person to refer it, you know? But I can't understand. Um, this, this has been happening for since 2015. They did this legislation, you know? The Governor-General signed off on it. He's supposed to do a bit of due, due diligence, I think the word is, you know. If they're, if they're, same as Labor, they're, they're not supporting this now, but they supported this unconstitutional legislation through. That's why they're sitting on the fence now, because they know that they're, they're, they're part of it. They're, they're culpable. They're guilty, you know. But no one will acknowledge that. I, I, I've, I've, I've spoken to media. I, I've sent them emails and that. This is the truth. Nothing gets said, mentioned about it, you know. This has to be fought in the real world, in courts, not on Facebook. Facebook's for connecting, organising meetings and that. Forget about the card, the legislation is the problem, you know? And that's why they've fought this other welfare bill in as well. They've stuck them together to confuse us, muddy the waters, we don't know what we're fighting or where we're going. Hi, I'm Stuart. Hi, I'm Marita. We are the Orb Weavers, and you're listening to 3CR 855 AM on digital radio. And streaming at 3cr.org.au. You're on Solidarity Breakfast with Annie, and we were just at the uh, National Day of Action for the Australian Unemployed Workers Union, and on the line we've got Steve Jolly. G'day, Steve. How are you? Good morning, Anne. Yep. Now, Steve Jolly, the reason why we're talking to you is because you've put your hat in the ring for the upcoming Victorian election as a socialist candidate. Yeah, that's right. There's a coalition of various left-wing groups and individuals have come together to try and get a joint ticket um, in the northern metropolitan seat in the upper house in the Victorian election. It's essentially the northern suburbs of Melbourne. There's three people on the ticket. Sue Bolton, who's a councillor in the city of Mourner, Socialist Alliance. Colleen Bolger, who's an asbestos lawyer in the city, very well-respected member of Socialist Alternative. And myself, I've been um, a councillor in the city of Yarra for the last 14 years. And we're going to have a crack at getting um, a socialist elected to state parliament and open up, I think, a big avenue to advocate for socialist policy, politics on a, on a um, state level, but also to help organise and mobilise people on the ground, similar to what Sue and myself have been doing at a local level in the last few years. It's fascinating because the last person that was on uh, was talking about uh, the cashless welfare card and how he got involved in, but he he was saying that the only way you can change is go to the court. But uh, you're uh, saying that actually uh, going to Parliament can actually have an effect on uh, what laws are being made. Well, I don't think I want to exaggerate that. One backbencher, even a socialist one, sitting on their own, on their arse in, in state parliament uh, or even federal parliament, in and of itself, is going to change absolutely nothing. Um, the, the old saying that if parliament could change things, they found it is, is true to, the day, to this day. 
Um, but say that again. Um, as, say that again. You know, you know, the, the old saying, you know, if, if, if um, you know, uh, Parliament, you know, if getting somebody elected to Parliament is going to, uh, you know, affect social change, it'd probably be banned. You know, yeah, yeah, yeah. Joker. But, but the, the reality of it is, what we've shown at a local level is that the position does give you an opportunity to get more access to the media and uh, advocate for your ideas. But more important than that, it gives you an ability to mobilise and organise people um, better than if you were just a person on the street. Um, so, for example, in the city of Yarra, there is groups that stand up against um, you know, some bad policies that council will do because they've got a councillor on side that they that will support them, you know, can help organise venues for them, get them access to the media, uh, give them some ideas and organise, help them organise and rallies to protest. So you can use the position to, to mobilise people and advocate um, and that through that, you know, which is people power, is really the way that things get changed uh, in this country and, and historically throughout the world, in my opinion. Yeah, well, it's this thing about agenda setting, isn't it? And the uh, the public housing sell-off is one an example of this. Uh, the mainstream media really does not cover this in- incredibly important story. Uh, people seem to be hand in glove that, you know, this is just something that has to happen. But in actual fact, it's it's an outrage and uh, people who are in public housing and the general public need to be aware that this is a very important issue, but it's very hard to get the, get it into people's minds. So that's what you're talking about, isn't it? Yeah, we've got to change the political agenda. I mean, for the last 40 years in Australia, neoliberalism, um, politicians to support neoliberalism, um, has dominated the political um, agenda. Um, and most people are over it. You know, they can see the privatisation uh, doesn't work, that the trickle-down theory is just a myth and that um, the rich are getting richer and the poor are getting poorer. But that's not really reflected politically. Um, it is at a certain degree at a local level with Sue over in Moreland, myself at Yarra. Um, but we need to take it to the next level now. And such is the vacuum politically between what people... Uh, think and want versus what they've been offered by the mainstream parties is that we want to try and fill that at least partially by um, by, by um, getting a you know a strong campaign this year in the northern suburbs of Melbourne. Already we've had you know hundreds of people, literally hundreds of people, join to get involved. Lots of money coming through, and we're looking forward to having a very exciting street-based grassroots campaign during the course of the year. It's it's very significant. It, I mean, that's a tautology. A significant that uh, the three groups, the Socialists, uh, the Socialist Alliance, and Socialist Alternative, have come together on this, isn't it? I think the, many in the left. Are, well, I think many in the left are looking at what's happened in America with the Sanders campaign and what's happened in Britain with the Jeremy Corbyn campaign, and thinking that. Really, um, you know, we have got differences among ourselves. We shouldn't be swept under the carpet on important issues. But when it comes to things like the, the main issues that are going to be raised in this state election, there's really not that much difference between the rest of all of us, you know. The question of housing, education, um, transport, uh, these state issues, law and order, um, really the left in general terms um, have an agreement on that. We've got two sitting left-wing councillors, socialist councillors in Melbourne. So we've got the raw material there for a united front and... Um, don't know, exaggerate this. This is not really like um, it's not an attempt at building a new party as such. It's more of a coalition um, to come together around this election campaign. If it, if it succeeds and if it wins, which is by no means guaranteed, well then we'll see what happens. But I think it's a start. It's a good start, and um, and it's really, I think, excited a lot of people who basically see themselves as on the left, but probably for a long time would have thought, why can't they get their act together and unite? And I just think, if we, you know, we have to do it. If we don't. 
the far right will jump in to that vacuum and offer nationalistic racist explanations for the problems that people have. So it's, there's, a, there's a lot of pressure on the left, I think, in Australia to get their act together. And this is a small start, but it's, uh, it's pretty exciting and so far so good. Now, so so that's uh, uh, very interesting, this uh, sort of progressive side of politics, having uh, practical methodologies in order to uh, get messages across in uh, a practical way. That's what you're talking about, in a meaningful way. Yeah, that's right. You know, we've got a, the rubber's got to hit the road. Um, and, you know, the issues that we're standing on are bread and butter issues. You know, with transport, we want a 10-minute city. Um, where all trains, trams and buses are properly integrated and trains are, are operating every 10 minutes and we have duplicated lines in suburbs that don't have duplicated lines and get people out of cars and into public transport. We also want to make it free. Um, you know, with housing, we want to have 50,000 new public housing homes in the next five years. We want to have a limit to Airbnb. We want inclusionary zoning. Uh, we want rent caps. So there's the type of things that will make this city more livable for ordinary people and young people and not just the super rich. Um, these are the issues that the major parties have walked away from mainstream Australia on, um, and we're going to, um, you know, we're, we're going to raise issues that will make this place a much more inclusive and a better and a cheaper place to live in. Um, and you know, um, so far the response that we've been getting from people is, is tremendous. Uh, we're going to be going out um, with, with meetings and street meetings and activities all over the northern suburbs of Melbourne, from Sunbury to Broadmeadows to Epping you know, down into Coburg and Preston and all the way down to the city of Yarra the city of, you know, the city of Melbourne itself. It's essentially like a triangle, um, the northern suburbs, and um, I'd really encourage anyone who considers themselves on the left to get behind this campaign and actively get behind this campaign, and they can go to the social media of Victorian socialists and just sign up um, there, um, either give a donation, make sure they join, but more importantly, get involved in the campaign. We really need more and more people involved during the course of this year. Thanks for talking to us this morning, Steve. Thanks for inviting me. Bye. Hi, I'm Hannah Smiley from WA. When I'm in Melbourne, I listen to 3CR 855 AM Community Radio. You can listen on your digital radio or stream it live and subscribe at 3cr.org.au. I don't want you at home anymore I want to go to work so I don't have to be poor I want to gig with my band on the Portland shore Hi, I'm Aaron Pedersen, and you're listening to 3CR. A week's solidarity, Brecky Team Lister, when, well, several weeks, including when all these supposed-to-be secret cabinet papers turned up in a cabinet. Must say I couldn't see the fuss, because they are cabinet papers. Where else would they be? 
They reinforced the compassion of our big economic guru and then Minister for Concentration Camps, Razor Wire and Sink the Boat, scuttled them more lash sun, and then big economic guru Joe Hackey, the workers, and big supremo tiny a bit more for the bosses. But Scuttle them said, revelations he ordered his department to break the law so legal asylum seekers would lose their rights had nothing to do with him. It was a memo from his department he proved his innocence. Well, who would think otherwise? His term as Minister for Concentration Camps, etc. was all compassion. Uh, so why did your department send you the memo, Scuttle them? Uh, because I ordered them to. Uh, so it had nothing to do with you. Nothing. It was the policy we were elected on. Uh, to, to break the law? Of course not. We made breaking the law the law. Uh, so you agree with the ACTU Sally McManus that at times people have to break the law. There is no relationship between good breaking the law and evil breaking the law. Evil union terrorists breaking the law and breaking the law that became the law to stop evil refugee terrorists. And the secret papers down at the op shop also revealed that all people under 30 are doll bludgers avoiding work so they can whoop it up on the exorbitant doll that keeps them living the high life in their comfortable little gutters. Tiny and Joe ha have to get some sort of marks for compassion when the voice of reason suggesting starving under 30s to death might be a touch extreme was Kevin and screws the workers. <laughs> Refugees, asylum seekers and migrants across the globe were also heartened knowing their future was secured when US of the UN of the US of the world big supremo Donald Trample the Paw declared to a journal he was the least racist person you will ever interview, ever, ever leaving us to ponder the quality of the interviewees on that channel, but then we are dealing with a genius, confirmed by no less reliable a source as the genius himself, telling us he is, like, smart. Like. Well, he proved his genius by declaring the US of recognising Jerusalem as the capital of his very, very, very close friend Zion had taken Jerusalem off the table. <laughs> sure, now the issue's bound to go away. Real like smart like. He did have a medical check from which the doctor concluded he wasn't demented. Surely a classic case for a second opinion. Although it might not technically be dementia, he might just be insane. Although the True Blue Aussie Capitalist Review tells us day after day after day after day, Donald was really like smart like in slashing taxes for the filthy rich and true blue Aussie has no choice but to slash taxes for the filthy rich so the unclean poverty stricken can be better off. It's so altruistic of the filthy rich, isn't it, that their sole motive for slashing the taxes they don't pay in the first place is to make life a little better for the unclean poverty stricken. Selfless, selfless, wonderful people. The unclean poverty stricken presumably luxuriating in the knowledge the filthy rich are so much better off. But how heartless, how cruel, the converse of that equation. Governments asking the filthy rich to pay just a little bit of tax. Like the European Union launching an inquiry into Swedish furniture frustrator IKEA, claiming it had avoided about 1 billion euros through a Dutch tax arrangement. Well... We saw the dreadful consequences of that cruelty. The IKEA founder and big supremo Ingvar Kamprad promptly died. 
ultimate proof of the dangers inherent in hitting the filthy rich with the dreaded prospect of having to fork out a little from their lazy, avaricious workers' hard-earned. I hope those EU tax grabbers are satisfied. On the IKEA founder dying of tax phobia, wonder if the undertaker managed to put the coffin together. Then there was the tennis, when the hyperactive channel that breathlessly brings it to us ensures these true blue Aussies ranked somewhere between 100 and 200 in the world make it onto centre court against those ranked at the top, promoting these one-sided non-events as blockbusters. And even one young bloke who does genuinely look promising at 18 years old was already a true blue Aussie superstar, according to the channel. Then after the first week, when all the true Aussie champions have sunk without trace, including the 18-year-old Supernova, who bombed out in round one, albeit to an eventual semi-finalist, they get down to the real thing, which includes the ads we have to suffer ad infinitum, pun intended. Bad, bad pun intended, which with the sound turned down I don't usually hear, but there was one where this bank showed we could hand over our hard-earned by flashing a watch or a phone or whatever over some device with the slogan, putting you in charge of your money, or something like that, and I thought, well, not quite. It seems more like they're inventing new ways to take it off us, putting us in charge of your money as if they need new ways. Last comment on the tennis from the journo who said Bernard Tomic is the only person who can make Nick Kyrgios seem likeable. The current Minister for Concentration Camps raise a wire and sink the boats and making us feel secure, Peter Duffer, pointed out the people of Melbourne were feeling very insecure. Restaurants were crowded with empty tables. People too afraid to venture past the letterbox at night thanks to big state supremo Dan, the pejorative Dan, who apparently was running riot at night, smashing, ransacking, stealing, terrifying, all his fault and proving what a mistake it had been to allow these young black people into the country, practising his making us feel secure bit by suggesting all black youth should be put on a boat and sent back to where they came from, with the pejorative Dan and the out-of-control state socialists cribbing the boat. And to celebrate Invasion Day, we asked Pete whether all black youth meant the terra nullius non-people who weren't here when the first boat people arrived in 1788 should also be deported. Certainly. These people, like you know, who don't respect our, you know, like, great national day, holding violent, you know, so-called, like, Invasion Day, like, you know, marches, should all be sent back to, you know, like, where they came from. God bless, like, Captain Cook. God bless Arthur Phillip-like, Governor, Governor Phillip-like. We all know Pete is, like, smart-like. And like Donald, not a racist bone in his body. After all, he was a Her Most Gracious Majesty's Land... So, sorry, police person for many years, so there wouldn't be. Wonder if places like Kenya are trying to deport white youth gangs. While on great ministerial minds... Poor old Barnacle. He's going to be a daddy again, very responsible at his age. And after his daughter ran around the electorate during the recent by-election in daddy's four-wheel drive with, 
language warning here, listener, language warning. Little children, leave the room with, my father is a bastard on the sides. Bit of a clue that it wasn't all happy families at Casa Barnacle, but just two casual observations. A miracle that anyone would have an affair with Barnacle, and more importantly, surely there must be some section of the Child Protection Act which could protect the poor kid. Although in fairness to Barnacle, he pointed out the relationship is between a man and a woman, the way it should be. Back to those tax cuts for the filthy rich to help the non-filthy rich, another year, listener, and I'm no less confused about matters of the delicate flower that is the economy. Matters we must leave to the experts in the boardrooms in Canberra, where the boardrooms and big economic gurus scuttle them say, slow wage growth remains a problem. A problem we have continually, obviously, naively argued seems to have a simple solution, but Scuttle them says he hopes wages will increase this year. Scuttle them, the working class hero, which brings me to this morning's confusion. Yesterday's True Blue Capitalist Review, the daily call for tax cuts from big supremo Malcolm Tun of Bull, no confusion there, but next page, the new Minister for Caring Business Class Relations, don't know where Mikayla ended up, but won't we miss her? New Minister Craig Moneylaundy, headline, urges employers to fight wage calls. But, but Scuttle then says he wants wages to rise. Well, slowly. Well, very, very slowly, but rise. So, oh, it just shows we have to leave it to the experts because sometimes we naive consumers of their wisdom get the silly impression that there just may be the odd contradiction in the greatest little economic order of them all. Like, finally, the Fair Work Ombudsman demanding all this material from the evil CFMEU over workers now locked out by mining giant Glen Rotten Tuther for more than 200 days at the Oakey North Mine in Queensland, Her Most Gracious Majesty's Land. Not on strike, locked out, but demanding the most minute details like who made the T-shirts picketers are wearing, the movement of evil union organisers' cars, who's paying the workers, who's providing the equipment on the picket. The locked out workers are the villains. And look, we can sum up just how lawless these picketers are, terrifying workers who just want to go to work by calling them scabs, which is now officially illegal. Fair work, no longer work choices, just looks like it. Con Missioner Ingrid Asprey highlighted the evil. One official, wait for this, raised the middle finger of his hand and on occasion both middle fingers simultaneously giving the finger to persons. Oh, but it gets even worse. The Picket soundtrack, she said, featured We're Not Gonna Take It by Twisted Sister. Good God, how evil can you get? But as law-abiding citizens listener, we would never call a scab a scab. Good morning. 3CR presents Communities of Sound, a summer afternoon showcasing treaty, creative women and diverse cultures. Live performances from Kutcher Edwards, Tundo, The West Papen Band, Sweet Dreams, Manisha Anjali, June Jones and Danny C. Catch us at the Fairfield Amphitheatre, Sunday 18th of February, 5 to 7.30pm. Communities of Sound is a free event presented as part of the Fairfield and Feb series. The City of Yarra is a proud sponsor of 3CR.
3CR, the perfect companion in your car on your road trip. You can stream radio straight into your car. Straight in. Like 3CR gets streamed straight into your car. Keeping you company. No matter where you're going or what you're doing, you'll have something interesting in your ear. That's correct. And you can Bluetooth it and you can just stick it right into you. Is any kind of attachment you want? (laughs) To subscribe to 3CR, unwaged is $35. Yes. Yes. Waged? $75. And solidarity? $150. One fifty. That's pretty reasonable to help keep 3CR on air. Call 3CR 9419 8377 and subscribe. Subscribe today. Subscribe now. When I'm on a road trip, I want to take 3CR with me and listen to Rock and Roll. Yeah, you're on Solidarity Breakfast with Annie. And uh, yes, the subscriber drive that started February is the month for renewing subscriptions. Uh, They said to subscribe today. If you want to subscribe today, which is a weekend, then you probably should do it online. Uh, But uh, during the working week, there's lots of people here who can take that subscription. Uh, If you're on podcast, of course, uh, working days, Monday to Friday, uh, or online, uh, we would love your donation on your membership, which is what the subscription is. Be part of it. Be part of the solution. Learn the news. Uh, learn the information that's actually being excluded from a lot of the uh, mainstream media. You know, you might have felt uncomfortable at some stage and thought mm, there must be more to this. Uh, and uh, and in fact, I've uh, spoken to people who have said that, that they've uh, been quite frustrated and they twiddled the dials and come across the 3CR and said, oh my God, I found a place where people are actually talking about the things that I worry about, which is uh, a great thing too. Now, uh, on Solidarity Breakfast, uh, we're moving on to a conversation I had with Don Sutherland. Now, Don is a great union man, and uh, he used to be uh, Chief Industrial Officer for the Australian uh, Manufacturing Workers Union. He's now retired, and uh, at this very moment, he's off in Cuba having a great time. Uh, talking to various people and having a yarn with uh, people that he'd met a couple of years ago. Uh, He has an ongoing connection where he and a group of others uh, fund uh, medical uh, equipment for a a hospital in Cuba. So he's going back there to uh, meet and greet again people that he knew. But before he left, he had a conversation with me about a couple of different things. This is the first part of our conversation. So uh, let's hear from Don. Always good to hear from Don. I'd love to know a little bit about uh, a book that you have have just noticed has been uh, released looking at labour politics and uh, labour dynamics in Australia. Do you want to give us a little bit of a lowdown on that? Yes, I uh, well... uh... Happy New Year to all of your listeners and um, uh, very, I think, very exciting today. We learned of the publication of a terrific and exciting new book by the sounds of it by Michael Quinlan, which is called The Origins of Worker Mobilisation, Australia from 1788 to 1850. Now, uh, I am relying on a review by the esteemed... um, uh, Labor historian Rowan Cale, who lives in and around the south coast of south of Sydney, and uh, Rowan is talking in um, 
very uh, voluminous terms about how good this book is. The essence of it is that Michael Quinlan has researched ships, manifests and logbooks plus uh, the uh, now digitalised colonial newspapers to discover the extent of worker organisation and worker industrial action before 1850. And there are particular reasons for that which you can find out more about in the review. But just to indicate one reason why I am so pleased and excited about this new book is that he has been able to produce a database using those sources that shows that there were 6,500 nearly industrial actions during this period. And he says that probably that's only about 60 to 70% of what actually happened uh, because of uh, new records not yet being found and uh, but are known to be available and as increasing examination of the existing records gets better. So um, Rowan Cale describes in more detail the content of the book and I heartily recommend the review. It can be found at the website for Progressive Political Economy in Sydney or uh, the Society for the Study of Labour History in Melbourne. Their website also has the same review. And the reason why I'm excited is that in this period, there are, in Australia, there are no formal workers' rights in a legal sense. So we're learning about the capacity of workers to act in combination, behave like unionists, to use a more modern expression, despite the law, in order to fight back in the name of their dignity, in the name of their safety, and in the name of their living standards such as they were at the time. I think this is a great breakthrough in Australian uh, history generally uh, and it should never be reduced to just being uh, labour history. This is enormous implications for our understanding of Australian history. It's fascinating isn't it because there's a general belief or uh, this idea that everything was uh under control or the moneyed class, the aristocratic class, had workers all fooled and that uh, nobody was able to put a step wrong. Uh, But it wasn't a settled period of history at all, just like it isn't a settled period of history now. In fact, uh, you were pointing out that uh, the uh, upcoming economic forum at Davros in Switzerland is an example of uh, that same money class coming up with uh, the uh, strategies that they're going to employ to uh, maintain the order that they prefer. Well, I'm sure, given Rowan's excellent review of the book, that, that the detail in the book is going to reveal the way in which employers were thinking as they themselves were forming themselves as the dominant class in Australia. Now, we know a hell of a lot more, and um, a a lot more is still to come, about the uh, frontier wars against the the Aboriginal nations already established in Australia, and what that meant to those people. And 
and so we should know about that. This, what we're hearing about here with this book, is again the revelation of hidden history. Now, it's true that in Australian labour history, there are books uh, that do refer to workers' struggles before 1850. For example, Jim Moss's wonderful uh, 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 history of the working class of South Australia called The Sound of Trumpets, which is not as widely known as it should be. It is also magisterial in its own way. But the uh, what we... What we are going to learn about is that the class struggle uh, was born before the convicts were loaded on the ships and brought out here and was continued and we're beginning to see the hard evidence uh, of all of that uh, revealed and this book is probably the groundbreaker in that regard. It's interesting that uh, this scholarly work is so important to uh, the understanding that uh, Australians have of themselves, which is almost diametrically opposed to the image that's being, uh, you know, politicians of various ilks want to enforce upon people. Now, Australia Day, Invasion Day, is... Uh, Channel 7, the uh, conservative uh, outlet that we have in Melbourne, for example, has uh, constantly for the last month been having vox pop with people in the street saying, oh, yes, we should keep it the right, the same day, get date, you know, as if uh, people who have been calling for another t- date, uh, a different uh, perspective, uh, are making it up, you know, that there is actually a problem. Uh, uh, History is so dynamic, isn't it? You know, you have to push the points of view forward. And this uh, Invasion Day issue has really made... uh, People are making a stance around it, aren't they? Uh, Yes, and uh, that is growing. And I think the thing about um, the January the 26th being an inappropriate day to celebrate Australia as a nation is, uh, I mean... uh, if we go back 10 years ago, there were very few uh, white fellows regularly going to the Aboriginal uh, First Nations people's protests against uh, Australia Day as a day of uh, celebration and of, that it should be rather a day of uh, recognition of invasion and tragedy. The uh, But now it's growing to the point where more it is now a public struggle in the form of words mainly it's a public debate and it's a struggle over how uh, Australians especially uh, uh, non-Aboriginal Australians see our country and that is now a hell of a lot more present than it was say 15 or 20 years ago where well it momentarily raised its head of course in the context of 1988 but um, is now it's got to the point now where each year those are determined and courageous Aboriginal peoples who organise protests on January the 26th are attracting broader community support to the point where now the nationalists, the blind white nationalists, realise they have a struggle on their hands about how our country is going to be defined. 
And this has uh, it feeds into elements around uh, the propaganda against unions, for example, or uh, that uh, I mean we're we're in the middle of a battle of the same kind of dimensions in in regards to in inequality with uh, a burgeoning uh, wealth class uh, siphoning off the wealth of the country. Uh, and a government that uh, chooses to give tax reductions to companies uh, saying that there will be a trickle-down effect. These the, People are actually... Uh, this means that the whole image of what working Australians believe they, they're partaking in is being uh, shattered, isn't it? The, 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 there's a shattering going on. Yes, well, in a sense, it's a new shattering because it has happened before in our history. Uh, obviously, the working class of the 1930s learned from their own direct experience of the Depression that there were serious problems with capitalism as it then was. Now, the combination of the Second World War and then Keynesian economics after that diluted workers' opposition to that system. It left many workers still dissatisfied with it, but uh, certainly nowhere near as intensely as what was happening before the war against fascism and Nazism in 1939-1945. Uh, now, the generation... Uh, the, uh, the If you like, the, the generation of workers who are just coming into the workforce or are going to be in the workforce in some way or another for the next 20 odd years they are now having to learn in their own way what this 21st century form of capitalism uh, what damage it does to working people's lives to the lives of the 90% plus or minus a few and how it exists in order to establish greater rates of accumulation of wealth for a minority, and that minority is tending to tending to decrease overall, although there might be a few more at the very top of that minority. Hmm. So each generation, in a sense, and this generation of workers are now confronted with 21st century capitalism repeating many of the characteristics of uh, capitalism's damage to humanity from pre uh, that was experienced by previous generations. And therefore, they themselves have to learn out, work out their own alternative. They, they can look at history to see what the possibilities might be the successes and the weaknesses and the failures, and they must do that. But this generation is going to have to stand up to 21st century capitalism as it currently exists. And that plays out in Australia at the moment in all sorts of ways. Capitalism's, 21st century capitalism's destruction of the environment, particularly revealed through global warming and climate change. When you learn of tens of thousands of bats dying because their brains boiled in the oh, heat, that's terrible. That's not far away oh. from the same thing happening to workers being forced 
to work in the heat. Yep. Extreme heat uh, and so on. The, uh, uh, the, the, the rising inequality uh, and then the constriction and limitation imposed on parliamentary democracy as a way of creating a new future. All of those things are going to have to be fought out by the generations of workers that are currently in work or coming into work in the next few years. And people of my age, for example, are going to stay in the struggle, of course, but every generation has to learn its lessons and learn them really quickly, otherwise life is going to get much tougher. Come your ranks of labor, come Union Corps And see if you remember the struggles of before When you were standing helpless on the outside of the door And you started building lanes on the chain, on the chain And you started building We're waiting on demand Riding through the strike With a pistol in their hand Swinging at the skulls Of many a union man As you build one more lane On the chain, on the chain As you build one more lane On the chain the army of the past I am not in love But I'm open to persuasion When you think of community, uh, think of 3CR. When you think of radio, think of 3CR. This is Joan Armour Trading asking you to support your community radio station, 3CR, the only alternative. But with the love of the whole my Yeah, the perfect companion in your car on your road trip. You can stream radio Anywhere. straight into your car. Straight in. Like 3CR yep. gets streamed straight into your car. Keeping you company. No matter where you're going or what you're doing, you'll have something interesting in your ear. That's correct. And you can Bluetooth it and you can just stick it right into you. Yes. <laughs> any kind of attachment you want. <laughs> To subscribe to 3CR, unwaged is $35. Yes. Waged? $75. And solidarity? $150. fifty. That's pretty reasonable to help keep 3CR on air. Call 3CR 9419 and... Subscribe. Subscribe today. Subscribe now. When I'm on a road trip, I want to take 3CR with me and listen to Rock and Roll.
You're on Solidarity Breakfast, or rather, we're coming to the end of the program where we listened to, uh, oh, we, we had a chat about the proposed Apple building in Fed Square. We talked to Brett DeHoot. Uh, we went on to, he's part of a group, he's the vice president of a, a recently formed group called the Citizens for Melbourne, uh, which you can follow up and uh, have a look at the issue. Uh, we went to the uh, National Day of Action, the uh, Australian Unemployed Workers Union, uh, over the proposed changes to the uh, welfare arrangements. It's called the Welfare Reform Bill. Very ironic title. Very, it's quite a disgusting assault on uh, our social security system, as well as a covert uh, uh, approach to uh, privatisation. Very dangerous. Very dangerous stuff. Uh, get involved. Uh, we uh, went on to have a chat with uh, Steve Jolly, who is part of a socialist ticket for the upcoming uh, Victorian uh, election, which is in November, if you hadn't got that in your calendar or in your mind. Uh, Kevin came back. Kevin has been on an extended holiday. He'll be back for a couple of weeks and then he's going, the, the blighter is going off for another little bit of a break. So uh, soak it in while you can. He'll be away for a week in about three weeks. So uh, soak it up, as I said. And uh, following that, we heard from Don Sutherland. And when Don comes back, we're hoping that he will give us a lovely discussion about what's going on in Cuba. Fabulous place. Uh, coming up next is Asia Pacific Currents. Uh, I've played a few show, uh, tracks this morning. Uh, the one we just heard was called Link in a Chain by uh, Phil Oakey. Uh, earlier we heard a, a, one of my favourites. I have played it before. Turn Up Your Radio. That's Joy Bell and the... I don't know what they're called. Joy Bell and the something or others, but you can hardly see it. Uh, but it's a great song. Uh, and uh, earlier we uh, had a little bit from um, uh, Archie Roach. But now we're going to go out with The End of Things by The Bachelorettes. Hear from me next week.
You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.